Amen. All right, we are rounding third uh, in our series in Revelation. Uh, This is our final section of the book. This is the culmination of the entire book, um, and this is the consummation of all redemptive history. Uh, In this sermon, in these texts in 20 through 22, uh, we're going to look at our age and um, the beginning of the end of our age and then the age that is to come. Um, So what's interesting, though, is I'm going to do something I don't often do, maybe I've never done before, I'm going to draw your attention to a blank space in your, in your Bible. So if you notice, uh, if you're astute here, if you notice, there's a space between the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, between 1921 and, and uh, 20, verse 1. Why that's interesting is because between that little space is the greatest divide in all of eschatology. Um, some of you know what I'm, what I'm talking about, some of you don't. Eschatology, as we've said before, is the study of the last things. And that little space will determine how you read chapter 20 and really how you read the rest of the book. Uh, Let me tell you what what I mean. If you read chapter 19, and if this is your your, your first time here, welcome. Uh, We've laid a lot of groundwork in the last few weeks, uh, so I'm going to try to bring you up to speed. But if you read chapter 19 and chapter 20 as if they are sequential historical events that directly follow one another, then you might be a little confused. Because in chapter 19, Jesus comes back for his bride. He judges, he defeats his enemies, his his enemies are thrown into the lake of fire, there is blood everywhere, it's a massacre, Uh, and and then Satan is bound for a thousand years, then Christ reigns with the saints for another thousand years before Satan is released to be judged and, and defeated again. Now, this would seem extremely confusing and obviously redundant. Or there's an alternative that we have been presenting all along. John is seeing another vision of the same events from another vantage point. This is why we have divided up the book of Revelation like we have, because there is a consummation element at the end of 19. Jesus is victorious, and then I see. So John now sees another vision. Um, and because it, it's confusing, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 20. Uh, because really within uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, this is where um, all of the uh, differing eschatological views come from. There's a lot of uh, things that need to be cleared up. So we're going to camp out here. And being quite honest, um, we may or may not get to chapter 21 and chapter 22. But fear not, we'll cover it next week. Uh, I will try to get to 20 and 21 and 22, but I'm excited for this. Uh, ladies, we had a lot of fun with this over the, over the summer, dealing with uh, chapter 20, 1 through 6. Uh, so we won't go through over all the eschatological views. That, that's not our, our purpose here. My purpose is to help, you, help this make sense. I'm going to present what the scriptures say. We're going to spend a lot of time in the context of Revelation and in parallel passages, and I'll let you decide for yourself. I think the choice is is pretty clear. Um, so let's begin reading in um, Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 6. And uh, we'll get the tricky stuff out of the way this week, and next week will just be a lot of encouragement and celebration. Lots of encouragement and celebration this week, too. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and that he must be released and after that he must be released for a little while then i saw thrones and seated on the thrones uh, on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed also i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of jesus and for the word of god and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise you for how awesome and great you are, how you've revealed yourself to us in many ways. Your creation declares your majesty. You have revealed yourself to us through the revelation of your word. From the days of Moses to the time of the Apostle John, you worked through many faithful writers carried along by the Holy Spirit, that everything we need to know for life and godliness is contained within, even the book of Revelation. Lord, would our time in this book be an encouragement to the people of God? Would we stand firm in our risen and reigning King? Would you remove any of the confusion or the, the distraction or our desire to pull all the bark off all the trees and miss the glorious forest of our Savior's victory and our promised eternal home? Lord, would we see that this morning? And would we also see who Satan truly is? We far too often give him too much credit. He is seen often as an equal and, and competing force on this earth. And he is far from that. He is bound. Any influence he has is granted to him, and it is only for a short time. Lord, would you encourage your people through your spirit uh, to the glory of your Son, and in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we go through these sections, one of the first things I want to draw to your mind are the first, first words, then I saw. How are we reading that? If we turn back to chapter 19, verse 11, then I saw the heavens open. Chapter 17, then I saw. Chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw. Verse 4, then I saw. Chapter 21, then, or, uh, 11 of chapter 20. Verse 1 of chapter 21, then I saw, then I saw. This simply tells us what John saw, obviously. It doesn't say, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. John only has two eyes and can only see one thing at a time. He sees this vision, and then he sees this vision, and then he sees this vision. This is helpful for us. Because we don't always have to um, see them as, as sequential actions. John is seeing parallel visions, and we'll see that. I mean, certainly there are not two different periods of a thousand years. But John sees on earth, and he sees in heaven. And we'll look at both of those. Um, and again, as we talked about last time, uh, 
last week we looked at the uh, defeat of Babylon, the, the defeat of the beast, the defeat of the, the prophets, our movie analogy. We, we, we zoomed in to these enemies being defeated, the people with the mark. But one enemy remains. One enemy has not been dealt with yet. There's one last piece of unfinished business. There is a climax to the defeat of the enemies of Christ and his church. I like that Derek Thomas says the order of the destruction is not chronological, but theological. The order of the destruction is not chronological, but theological. These these theological dominoes are falling. Because Satan, just like social media, Satan has his influencers. His influencers, persecution, propaganda, persuasion, the two beasts in Babylon. He uses them in the world to to influence people. And so when his influence begins to die, first Babylon, and then the next beast, and then the next beast, now we zoom in to the defeat of the great dragon himself. Remember, we looked back in chapter 12 that the dragon is introduced in the second half of the the book. It's, It's the dragon who pursues the child. The same serpent that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. The one who is nipping at the heels of the seed of the woman. Who will have his head crushed. But until he does, there will be enmity between the child and the dragon. This great dragon that holds these influences and the world in his sway. Whose throne is on earth. Now, the final enemy is going to be defeated before our eyes. So, we need to understand, where has the dragon been all this time? Because we introduced him in chapter 12. We haven't seen much of him. We've seen his influence in chapters 13 and 14 with the beasts, and in 17 with with Babylon. We haven't heard much of him. So now John gets a vision of what has the dragon been doing this, this whole time? We know he's here, but to what degree? What's he actually doing? And so as we get into verses 1 and 2, um, it will tell us what, what he is doing, where he is, and his, and his state. But this is important. How you read verses 1 through 6 will determine how you view the nature of our age, the state of Christ right now, the state of the dead in Christ, and the power of Satan. All of those things can take drastically different turns depending on how you read this passage. And so, when we get in, then I saw... An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. But the first thing I want you to see is this is a parallel account to chapter 12. Let's go back to chapter 12 and then we'll... uh, We'll break down chapter 20. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Here's the drama that's introduced in the second chapter of the verse, or excuse me, the, the, the second half of the book. This is the uh, spiritual drama that is, that, that is going on, and, and we got those three characters, the, the, the woman who is the church, the dragon who is Satan, and the child who is Christ. Pick up in verse 3. And, an, and another sign appeared. Remember, John is seeing a series of signs here. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars and cast them onto the earth. Remember that that word is going to come up again. So from heaven down to earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that, she, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So the, the, the dragon and his angels are on the earth and they are uh, desiring to, de- to devour the woman, especially the child, this prophesied child who would crush his head. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But what happened to her child? Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is important. This is the incarnation of God himself. The child who who, who came to save a people for himself, who died on the cross, who rose again, who was resurrected, and then ascended to where? His throne in heaven. Remember, this is where he is, his throne in heaven, until he comes back to judge and make all things new. That's important. Let's continue. And then the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This is a wilderness period. We looked at all these numbers earlier on. You can go back to those sermons if you want more of that. And now we kind of take a step back, a bit of a flashback, if you will, to show what happened for Satan and his angels to be cast down. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there is no longer any place for them in heaven. That's important as we go move from heaven down to earth in chapter 20. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Remember, that's what's at issue in chapter 20. He's deceiving the nations. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers had been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Satan is doing two things in heaven before the incarnation of Christ. He is deceiving the nations, and he is accusing the saints night and day. That's his job. That is his his full-time mission, to go before God like he did with Job and accuse the people of God and put a spell, a, a, a deceitful spell over all the nations. But when the child is brought up to his throne, now salvation has come. Now he can no longer deceive. Now he can no longer accuse. And there's an encouragement to the saints in verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That's going to play a part in our text this morning as well. Because our conquering of Satan is because we love Christ and we love his witness and we are with him. And so when we're in him, Satan has no power over us. So this is important. If you're a persecuted church in the first century and you wonder, I see wickedness everywhere. I see saints being torn limb from limb. I see people being tortured for the name of Christ. Satan seems like he's, he's running the show down here. Ah, there is evil. But Satan is bound. Satan, can, Satan has no sway in heaven. He may play around in the mud puddles of earth, but he no longer has an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, um, that's what we're looking at. Remember, so in, in heaven, Satan was uh, deceiving the world and accusing the, the, the saints. Um, let's open this up a little bit. But now, we looked at this a few weeks ago. I am reiterating this because this is important. 
What does this mean for us now? Jesus has a lot to teach us about this. Luke chapter 10. I want you guys to memorize these at, at, this, at this point. Because this is important. Because I think too many Christians walk around afraid of the devil all the time. Too many, too many pastors blame everything on the devil and act like he has sway over the people of God and God is powerless against him. And that's foolish. Look at how Jesus describes uh, the, the, the nature after the incarnation here. Chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. With joy. He sent out the 72. Um, they're healing people and preaching and casting out demons. And he said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Watch how Jesus answers. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. How is it that the demons are subject to us in your name? Because Satan fell from heaven down to earth. And because he did, now, verse 19, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy. That is the nature of Christian ministry right now. Satan is thrown down to earth. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Christ. He has given it to his people. And in his name, there is power over the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Saints, take comfort, as he did with the disciples here. And verse 20, 20 but even more importantly, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. This is temporary. This does not last what we really rejoice in is that the spirits are subject to, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We're going to get there later in the Lamb's book of life, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that next week. Jesus also told us in John chapter 12. Now, Luke chapter 11, those are the Jewish disciples who are sent out two by two to heal and, and to preach. John chapter 12, in the last week of his life, the Gentiles seek him. This is important. Jesus does not say any words um, haphazardly. There's great intention with all these words. The uh, Greeks are, are, are seeking him. Notice what he says, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this word, world. Now, meaning right now. Now will the ruler of this, this world be cast out. Same imagery here, cast out. Satan holds no more sway in heaven. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. Notice the connection here. This is spoken to a crowd of Gentiles. Jesus says, yeah, Satan, he's, he's cast out. The judgment of this world and his judgment has begun. But also, my kingdom, every tongue, tribe, and nation has begun. I will draw all people without distinction, to myself, because I have been lifted up from the earth. The ascension of Christ ushers in this kingdom proclamation to all tongues, tribes, and nations. This is exactly what we're seeing in uh, Acts 10, the veil being lifted for the Gentiles. All right, we'll get to more of that in just a moment. All right, so I, I want you to get this. That's why we're leaning in here. We're kind of camping out a little bit. What does it mean that Satan is bound? This is um, similar language here. Again, Jesus is helpful, 
as he should be. Is this word used anywhere else? Mark chapter 3, verse 22. It's actually used in all of the synoptic gospels, by the way. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Notice how Jesus uses the, the same word here, but I want to back up a little bit to give us context. One of the accusations against Jesus was that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Let's pick up in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's, a, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has written, risen up against Satan and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house. Who's the strong man here? Satan. And plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he can plunder his house. How is Jesus plundering the house of Satan? By casting out demons. How is he casting out demons? Because Satan is bound. And since Satan is a spiritual being, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was helpful here. Since Satan is a spiritual being, he can't can't be bound in a physical way, but he's bound in a a spiritual way. Um, Just side note. I'm not going to get into the, the uh, different views on uh, Revelation chapter 20, but if you want to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on Revelation 20, they're fantastic. Even if um, you're not really interested in eschatology, just to hear his Welsh role of resurrection like a hundred times, it's, that's better than I thought I was going to do. Um, that is, is such a great message. Um, so because we can't understand what it means, how, how do you bind a spirit? We have to be given imagery. So we're, we're given chains and shackles and, and a, a pit. But we know he's a, he's a spirit. These aren't, these aren't literal things. These are images like the rest of the book. The same idea is in Jude, verse 6. Jude is that little book uh, right before Revelation. And it's Jude 6 because there's only one chapter. Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Remember, Satan took down... A, um, all these stars with his tail, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Huh. That sounds pretty familiar. Okay, so what does this imagery mean? They are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. They have been banished from the glory of God. They have been removed from God's shining light that will be present in the new heavens, new earth. They are chained to this world. They are limited in their, their, their scope. And it is gloomy and it is dark and there's a great day coming when they will all face judgment. So the picture we should have of, of, of Satan, he is a roaring lion, but he's kind of like a dog on a leash. You ever go to someone's house and they get that nasty, you know, mean Rottweiler in, in the background, but he's on a chain? And that uh, chain has, has, has worn the grass down in a circle. The grass, nothing will, will, will grow there because this vicious beast is running in a circle in a circle. You can get right here and spit in his face. He's got all bark, no bite. Satan is limited to where God limits him. He is limited, but don't be foolish. 
You take one step into his domain and he will tear you up. So saints, we don't give Satan too much credit. But we don't presume upon his limiting either. So he is bound for a thousand years. Okay, here's, here's another big one. You can fit a lot of theology into a thousand years, I promise. But these, this numerology in the book, these, these tools are helpful for us. We've gone through it. The number four being significant of, of, of all the creation. The number 12 being significant of all of the people of God. The number seven being the number of completion and uh, perfection. So what about the number 1,000? Throughout the scriptures, whenever you want to make something so big to overwhelm someone, you just say 1,000. God promised David that he would have a son on his throne for a 1,000 generations. The people of God in heaven, this, this great chorus of the church triumphant, there are 144,000. You know how you get there? 12 times 12 times 1,000. The people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament, times a really big number. So let's just ask a question. Uh, why the number 1,000? Like, that doesn't seem big to us because we, our, our government throws around billions and, and, and trillions like it's nothing. But has anyone ever seen 1,000? Not even Methuselah. 1,000 is, is a very long time. No one, ha- no one will ever see it, and no one's ever really counting to a thousand either. This is just a big number. This, this represents an entire age, um, and it parallels all those dates we saw earlier. The uh, 42 months, the 1260 days, the uh, three and a half years, this, uh, this uh, wilderness period, this, this half a time, and it's the exact same symbolism that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, We looked at this before, but I'm going to look at it again. Because if you're going to have an eschatological position, a position on the millennium, it has to come from Revelation 20. It's the only place where a thousand years is mentioned. It's mentioned six times, I think. But, again, what you believe about that will determine what you believe um, about Christ and the nature of Satan and all these things. But here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Another encouragement and reminder to the church that the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. These are, this is symbolic representative language. And what's the purpose of him bringing up a thousand years? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's the you? The beloved. Why this long period of time? Why the patience of the Lord? Why thousands of years? Because the Lord loves you, beloved. Because he is patient to you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. This is a long time because God has a lot of people. And his book of life is being opened throughout the centuries. And to him, it's just a day. To us, a thousand years, really, Lord, maybe a thousand years till you return? What's that to you? We've got eternity to look forward to. So after the thousand years, then the end of the age, heaven and earth will pass away, and we'll pick up on that next week. Um, But I want to get back to Revelation chapter 20. We're still only in verse 3. 
They threw him into the pit for a thousand years and shut it and sealed it over him. What is the purpose? The purpose is right in the, state, in, in the verse. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Remember what we looked at in chapter 12. It is sealed over him. He can't break out. He cannot move from where God has bound him. What is the significance of this? Because when you, when you hear this, well, wait a second. Satan can't deceive the nations any longer. It seems like Satan's alive and kicking. Kind of seems like he's pretty busy out there. Let me ask you a question. Before the incarnation, how many nations believed? I'll give you a moment. Let you carry the one. It's one. There was one nation, the people of Israel. All the other nations were deceived. Every one of them had a cloud of darkness over them. But after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we're studying this in the book of Acts, how many nations believe? All of them. The gospel is going to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Satan no longer has sway over the gospel. The Great Commission, again, begins with all authority and evidence on earth has been given to me, so go. Christ has blocked Satan. Excuse me. Christ has stopped Satan from blocking the gospel. He no longer holds sway over all the nations. He can no longer stop the spread of God's salvation. Let that sink in. That's what it means he can no longer see the nations. Meaning, if we go to preach the gospel to Israel, to Africa, to Asia, to the person down the street, Satan cannot deceive them if they are written in the Lamb's book of life. The same idea is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Uh, this is really helpful. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Ailed to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The message here is that, yes, Satan is the God of this world, lowercase g. Satan can blind the unbelievers. He can blind the goats. He can blind the unelect. But the sheep, they will hear the master's voice. The elect, they, they, they will come to him. And he cannot deceive them. Christ proved to us when he was tempted in the wilderness that Satan is powerless against him. That's why we don't minister in our name. We minister in his name. That's when the, the apostles came back. They said, they are sub, the demons are subject to us in your name because Christ has bound him, because Christ has power over Satan. Imagine, again, being in Rome, being persecuted, sitting in a jail cell for your faith, and you're wondering, has Satan won? And you read the book of Revelation. And you read the defeat of the dragon. And you read that he can no longer deceive the nations. And you read that there's a new heaven, new earth. And you read that Christ will judge the living and the dead. And you read that those who are in him will be with him forever. Are you discouraged anymore? This imagery is vital. All right, we've got more to handle. Um, we made it through, through the first section. Four and five. Uh, then, then I saw thrones, and, um, and seated on them were those whose authority, 
whom the authority to judge was committed. Here's, an, here's another vision of, of the thousand years. When we think about thrones, there are only two types of thrones in, in Revelation. It is God's throne of glory and Satan's throne on earth. Now, when we think about thrones, what, what does this, this ruling mean? Uh, Jesus promised to the churches in chapter 3, verse 21. The last of the uh, seven churches, Laodicea, the promise in 321 says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay, so we're moving from Satan being on earth to the saints being uh, with Christ in heaven. Right now, Christ is reigning in heaven. We know that from chapter 4. We know that from chapter 12. And how long does he reign there? How long is Christ in heaven? I'm glad you asked. Because the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament, Psalm 110, gives us the play-by-play. Psalm 110. Most of you are familiar with this, but maybe you haven't thought about it in this context. Let's read the whole thing. This psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, says, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Notice how it continues. The Lord sends forth from Zion, from the people of God, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus told us his kingdom was in their midst, yet not of this world. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This is, this is consummation language. During this, this reign, your people, because we are made new in Christ, he will... He will um, Cause us to be born again so we offer ourselves freely. We will uh, wash our garments in his blood. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. Okay, here's Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He goes from the throne in heaven to shattering the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is all victory language. Christ will be on his throne in heaven until he comes back in victory. That's what we saw at the end of 19. That's what we're going to see in just a few moments at the end of chapter 20. He goes from a throne of heaven in glory to victory on earth, and then in chapter 21, his throne will be on earth, and rivers of living water flow out of it. So what does that mean for all this? That means that the saints who die in Christ go to be with Christ now. He said, you will be with me on my throne, the throne that my Father has given me. They are with him in glory. The promise to the thief on the cross was true. Believe in me, and today you will be with me in paradise. That is the language of Revelation chapter 20. The souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their forehead. Sorry, I'm back in chapter 20, verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life and came to where Christ is. There's a parenthetical at the beginning of chapter 5. There's a parenthesis here. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Then, this is the first resurrection. All right, let's talk about the first resurrection. They came to life. They, and if you come to life, you are with Christ, and you reign with Christ. 
where he is. Text never says that there's an earthly throne, that he, that he comes down to earth. What is this, this, this first resurrection? Um, John 11, 25 and 26, you're probably familiar with, with this. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's the most important question you will answer this morning. Do you believe this, that he is the resurrection and the life? If you believe in him, you will never die. What is this first resurrection? By faith. Souls. Notice here, the souls of those who had been beheaded. This is a, a spiritual resurrection. By faith, they're made spiritually alive. After a thousand years, the rest of the dead, there'll be a physical resurrection. For judgment, that's the second resurrection. And Jesus even clarifies what these two resurrections are in John 5. I told you there'd be a lot of parallels because uh, we need them. John chapter 5. Um, this, this text is the one that convinced me uh, of this, this theological position. Uh, the, the, the already uh, not yet of these two resurrections. John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, right now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That kind of sounds like resurrection language, doesn't it? For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming. So we've got now here, then coming. First resurrection spiritual, there's an hour coming when all who are in the tombs, kind of sounds like bodies, will hear this voice and come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of death. Jesus tells us that the, the, the first resurrection are those who hear the word of God and they come to life and they live with him, but there's a day coming. As we'll see at the end of chapter 20 where the seas are gonna give up their, their dead. And all the dead are going to raise, and they're going to be judged in the second resurrection. This language is built into the gospel. Um, I want to do a quick little tour de force here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I think we, we, we know this obviously instinctively, that to trust in Christ and come to new life, that's resurrection language. But look how Paul describes it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We're definitely not getting into 21 and 22 today. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's resurrection language. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wait a second. Paul takes it a step further here. If you're resurrected in Christ, if you have new life in him, you are seated with him now. Union with Christ means you are a king and priest to God now. You have all the share in his righteousness and his kingdom now that you'll have in glory. Positionally, we may be standing on earth, but we are placed with Christ forever. Why does God do that? Here's the eschatological language, verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why does God do all this? To show the world how gracious he is. To show the world how rich and merciful he is. To lavish us. 
with the great blessings and riches of our Savior. Similar language in Colossians 2. You can go two books to the right. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. How are we made alive? Having forgiven all our trespasses. He does it by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross is our resurrection. But what, else, what also is the cross? Look at verse 15. Still implied here at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross sealed the binding of Satan, disarmed all of his power, took away all of his authority and put him to shame. Death can't hold me. You can't hold me. My kingdom will stand. Yours will fall. Chapter 3 of Colossians. If you then, verse 1, have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Where is his throne? It's above. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Here's the this duality for, for Christians. We walk on the earth, but our minds are set in heaven. Because in the, in the first resurrection, we are seated with Christ now, even though we stand here in our bodies. For you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Notice the next step. Christ is in glory. We're with him. When he appears, it's glory. There's no intermediate state. There's no halfway kingdom. We look to Christ in heaven, and when the next time we see him, it is glory. Praise God for that. And if you have been resurrected to the spiritual life, you have no reason to fear the second death. Oh, man, we dealt with two resurrections. Now we've got to deal with, with two deaths. Yes. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, this one's pretty simple. This is not a video game. It's not like you, you keep getting additional lives. Um, there are two deaths. Pop quiz, what happens after your life here ends? You breathe your last. Death. Death number one. Everyone will have it if Christ doesn't return first. And at the second resurrection comes judgment. But what does that judgment mean? Let's flip over to verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Notice, these are no longer souls. These are, these are dead. These are the bodies coming out of the grave that Jesus said in John 5. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what he has done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Don't fear this death, Jesus says. Don't fear the ones who can kill the body. That only happens for a moment. The second death goes on forever and ever and ever. It is a lake of fire and torment that you don't want to go to. But if you have gone through the first resurrection, if you put your faith in Christ and you come to life, you have no reason to fear the second death. That is the encouragement to the church here. And Paul puts all this together in 1 Corinthians 15. 
I know, it's a whirlwind. I hear some heavy breathing in the, in the front row. But I want you guys to have all this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Notice how Paul brings all this together. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, everyone in Adam will die, first death, guaranteed. So also in Christ, everyone in Christ shall all be made alive. First resurrection, guaranteed. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay, so remember, we're waiting for the, 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 the uh, fullness of the beloved to be, to be saved, the book of life to come in. When they are all gathered in, Christ will return with those who belong with him. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, quoting Psalm 110, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Same picture here. Christ is drawing all people to himself. In him there is life. He is gathering the saints in glory until the last saints come in. And he's going to hand the kingdom over to his father, destroy the, the, the final enemy, and we'll see the consummation of all things next week. Okay, so we've covered a lot. I've got a recap for you. Um, it'll be on the screen, and David will send it out th this, this week. Why do we spend so much time on this? One, because there's a lot of confusions. Two, hopefully I won't have to answer any questions after this. Um, but most importantly to be encouraged that the resurrected Christ is king now. And if you are in him, if you are united to him, you reign with him now. Our mind and our hope is set on him, and this is to be the encouragement to the church for the entire church age. To John's audience, to us, to every other church until Christ returns. Secondly, he has all authority. And the Spirit is drawing people from every nation to him. And Satan cannot deceive the elect. This is to be comforting to us. Christ has all authority. We are in Christ. Satan cannot thwart his plans. So be comforted, saints. So during this millennium, this thousand years, thirdly, Satan is a prowling lion. But he's a lion on a short leash. He is inviting the world into the gates of hell, but the church will prevail in Christ. All right, at the end of the age, um, he's going to be released for a little while, so we're quickly just going to hit these last two sections in chapter 20. All right, since we've laid a lot of ground here, and when the thousand years are over, verse 7, Satan will be released from, from prison. This is the same exact picture we get in chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Chapter 9, verse 11 calls him the angel of the bottomless pit. That's who he is. There'll be a time at the end of the age. Remember I said this is, we've just dealt with this age. Now we're looking at the end of the age. Satan rises, all his forces gather. 
Gog and Magog gather. Uh, they're the uh, great enemies in Ezekiel 38 and, and 39. And then this, this, this final battle scene is coming together. But this is the same battle we saw in 16. 16, 12 through 16, where the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, their demonic spirits, they all gather, assemble for the battle on the great day of the Almighty. They're assembled at the place of Armageddon. It is reiterated again in chapter 19. We just looked at it last week. Chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse uh, and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he was deceived, uh, those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So again and again and again, the forces of Satan at a time, at the end of the age, are going to rise up against Christ. But now we see Satan himself released. We see the uh, ringleader. And what happens? The same thing. The end of verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceived, or who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. The same one where the beast and the false prophet were thrown in the last chapter. And they'll be torn, tormented day and night forever. We don't worry about what is to happen at the end of the age. We know what's happened. It will get worse, but it will get much better. Then I saw there's another vision. We talk about the, the, the day of the Lord of, of being one culmination. The final judgment that we've been hinting at this entire book is seen in detail. After the thousand years, the, the uh, war happens, and then the final judgment, where he came back for in chapter 19, and the dead are judged. This is the physical resurrection, the, the second one that we looked at. And then they're thrown into the second death where they're tormented forever. But this judgment is a picture of two books. The book of those who had done evil and go into torment, but the book of life. Praise God that when the white throne of judgment comes, this throne of judgment for saints is not judgment, it's grace. It is a throne of grace because it is a throne covered by the blood of the Lamb. It is a book that was printed before the foundation of the world. It is a book that has all those who are elected to life in it. And I wanted to do a quick survey. Go back to chapter 3, verse 5. Here's the, the, the promise to the church in Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Now chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's being the beast of the sea. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life from the lamb who was slain. Same thing we saw in 17.8 when he rises out of the pit. Everyone's going to marvel except those whose names have been written in the book. And then finally 21.7. But nothing unclean will ever enter this new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is to encourage the saints. You are secure in Christ. You are in his book. Take comfort in that. Don't worry about Satan. 
Don't worry about what happens. His time is coming. Don't worry about judgment. Brothers and sisters, if you fear judgment, you either don't know Christ or you don't know the gospel. Because the gospel is that our God took on flesh and rose again to new life, that we might rise again to new life with him. And because he lives, as long as he lives, we live. And so we can stand in judgment because he took judgment for us. This is to bolster and encourage the church. And now, because the book of life is complete and wickedness has been banished, all heaven and earth can be united. Lastly, uh, and then we'll, then we'll close, I want you to see the same sequence in chapter 11. The song sung from heaven, we see the same sequence. Chapter 11, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is. He's already come. For you have taken your power and begun to reign. His, his reign is already in place. Christ, who has come, um, his, his, uh, his uh, reign is in place. While he's reigning, the nations rage. And then his wrath comes. And then there comes a time for the dead to be judged as a second resurrection. And then his saints will be rewarded. And those who fear your name, both small and great, because you've destroyed all your enemies. And then the next thing we'll see is God's temple in heaven was opened. And that's what we'll see next week. This is the, the, the process of the end of the age. Christ pouring out his wrath on his enemies, judging the living and the dead, rewarding the saints, banishing death forever, and then the heavenly temple in Jerusalem. So, uh, I want to just stop for a moment here. We covered a lot. And yes, there are differing views here, and I just want to just put a disclaimer on this. There are many disagreements on how and when these things are going to happen, and no one has it perfect. Um, I am pretty confident uh, and I know when the Lord returns, I'm going to get all kinds of correction. But here's what's most important. All Orthodox Christians believe that it will happen. Even if you don't understand or agree on when or how it will happen, everyone agrees that Christ will return. Everyone agrees that Satan will be defeated. Everyone agrees that the living and dead will be judged. And everyone agrees that there will be a new heaven, new earth in which we dwell together with God. And in glory, all of our views will be irrelevant because we will forget them. Because we'll be so consumed with the light of Christ. This is why in the Nicene Creed, all Orthodox Christians can declare this together. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. What you believe on this does not affect your salvation, although it has a lot of implications on how you live your life. All right, um, just a uh, final thought, that this book serves to encourage the persecuted church and the pampered church. If you wondered which one we are, you can figure it out. But I want to close with a uh, reading from Romans 8 and then a final exhortation. Romans chapter 8. When in doubt, go to Romans 8. It's a good... It's a, good, it's a good place to land after we talk about all these things. Romans 8, verse 33. Notice, we were talking about Satan 
this morning, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Not today, Satan, or any other day. I just, I had to throw that in there somewhere. Um, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Christ could come tomorrow or a thousand years from now. But all that matters is are we found in him? Are we covered by the blood of the Lamb? Are we his spotless bride? Is Jesus Christ your Lord who you will dwell with forever? If so, it doesn't matter when he comes. But he is coming. We can wait patiently and rest now, and we can also wait expectantly in hope. And this table is a means of grace and a remembrance of that hope. So I want to give you a few moments to reflect on that before we approach it.